Hello and welcome to Essential Descent. I'm Wilton Vaught, producer and host of the series. This is the second of two episodes consisting of audio from a webinar entitled No to the New Cold War. The organizers describe the webinar as an international meeting in opposition to the U.S.-led New Cold War on China. You can find their website at nocoldwar.org. We start with moderator Jenny Clegg. The Chow Collective is a collective of diaspora Chinese challenging U.S. aggression on China. Formed earlier this year, they seek to provide a bridge between the U.S. left and Chinese Marxist and anti-imperialist politics, aiming to equip the U.S. anti-war movement with tools and analysis to better combat the new Cold War. The collective has already produced some of the most profound and perceptive articles I've read so far this year, Speaking on their behalf is Sean Hao-Chin Kang. Thank you so much for that introduction. Those of us who follow us and support us at Chiao may know me as one of the translators. Chiao Collective and I personally are very honored to speak today in such distinguished company. In the past few months, the Asian diaspora around the world, but particularly in the West, have been experiencing increased hostility. Due to talk of the Wuhan virus, or Kung Flu, pushed by some, many have come to face scrutiny, alienation, and even violence. A 39-year-old woman in Brooklyn is doused in chemical acid while taking out the trash. An Asian-American family, including two toddlers, are stabbed while shopping in a Texas supermarket. And a 60-year-old Chinese man died of cardiac arrest in Sydney, Australia, because bystanders, presuming he was infected with COVID-19, refused to administer CPR. As a collective of Chinese diaspora activists, Chao Collective has striven to place the interpersonal hate and sinophobia we witness in our daily lives into a larger structural context. We see domestic racism and international imperialism as two sides of the same coin. We reject claims to imperial citizenship, multicultural belonging, and safety through policing as means to oppose anti-Asian hate violence in the time of COVID-19. Instead, This violence must be cut off at its source by ending the principal contradiction of U.S. imperialism as it coheres around the so-called China threat. Recent American escalation against China may seem abrupt, but not when put into context. Obama's pivot to Asia, while ostensibly made in the spirit of partnership, quietly shifted 60% of U.S. naval and air capacity to the Asia-Pacific. Trump merely builds on that marking China as the Pentagon's number one priority, warning of a coming class of civilizations, and just this month declaring the CPC's guiding ideology of Marxism-Leninism as antithetical to American values. This bipartisan support for being tough on China actually finds its roots in the American imperial project. Since the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, the United States has waged war around the world unopposed. China, too, often found itself the victim of imperialist aggression, including the infamous 1999 bombing of the Chinese embassy in Belgrade, and the 1993 Yinghe incident, in which a Chinese container ship was forced by the United States to strand at sea for 24 days. Bush Jr.'s engagement anticipated the political liberalization of China, or the eroding power of the CPC, and its elimination as an impediment to the U.S.'s own interests. China has instead refused to submit to imperial pressure. Moreover, it has a growing capacity to support so-called rogue states 
against American unilateralism affected through aggressive hybrid warfare. This has now led the United States to confront China in a desperate bid to preserve its hegemony. As anti-imperialists, socialists, and peace activists, we must be prepared to meet this challenge head on. Ultimately, we must understand that imperialism is a being of many faces. The hostility experienced by the Asian diaspora in the West, the centuries-long program of dispossession and genocide of indigenous peoples, refusal to address deep-rooted grief over racialized and militarized policing, and continuing warfare and famine in Iraq, Syria, and Yemen. These are all branches of the same root. Sick and shattered societies birthed from the contradictions of imperialism. The new Cold War agenda is dangerous and must be thoroughly understood. Instead of approaching the crisis of COVID in the spirit of science and cooperation, the United States and its allies have cynically chosen to continue inhumane sanctions on Iran, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, Lebanon, and Venezuela, among many others, starving their citizens of much-needed medical supplies. While in the United States, 148,000 lives have been lost to COVID, disproportionately in indigenous, black, and immigrant communities. Yet the U.S. is not funding pandemic response, but instead dedicating $20 billion towards regaining the advantage in the Asia-Pacific. This not only deprives the American poor of much-needed resources, but redirects them to the equally criminal occupation of Ryukyu, Guam, and Hawaii in the name of containing China. Meanwhile, China has proven itself a responsible and accountable actor in the face of global challenges such as COVID, climate catastrophe, and the struggle against poverty. It has conceived of and practices the foreign policy doctrine of a shared future for humankind. Since the onset of COVID, China has sent billions of tons of medical aid, indiscriminate of ideology or alliance, committed to increased funding of the World Health Organization, and has declared that the Chinese vaccine would be a public good, prioritized for global South nations. Crisscrossing the world at great risk to themselves, Chinese and Cuban medical brigades embody socialist internationalism, understanding that human solidarity is required for today's increasingly complex problems. Some Western leftists misperceive these diametrically opposed records and think U.S. aggression on China as simply an inter-imperial rivalry. False equivalences between the U.S. and China only obscure the roots of this coming conference, the desire for the maintenance of U.S. hegemony at any cost. Sitting on the sidelines takes the side of the status quo, that of preserving violent imperialism over the global South. Amidst the highly propagandized Western left, Chow Collective sees part of our role as a bridge towards the Chinese left. Highlighting the nature of China's socialist project, its vision of win-win cooperation, and the lasting, vital legacy of the Chinese revolution and its principles of people's democracy, internationalism, and anti-colonialism. The United States has identified these very principles as an unacceptable threat to its own bloody hegemony. It's up to us and the imperial core to challenge, oppose, and dismantle every imperialist roadblock to a world of peace, cooperation, multilateralism, and shared development. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for that, Sean. That was great, highlighting the underlying structural contradiction and the contrast between the US and what China is starting to do in the world. So thank you for that. 
Now, understanding China in the world requires us to take a broad sweep of history. One of the few Western scholars to do so with his concept of China as a civilization state is Martin Jacks, author of the internationally acclaimed When China Rules the World. Over to you, Martin. Well, I won't go on too long. I just wanted to make four main points. The first is, well, where did all this start? Or when did all this start? And I think, really, the origins of this Cold War onslaught from the United States essentially date from the 2008 financial crisis. This was completely unexpected as far as the West was concerned, and it led to a big shift in the center of gravity of power from the United States to China. And it undermined the previous position that the Americans had held, which had underpinned their conception of the relationship between the two countries after the Nixon-Mao Accord. And those two propositions were, firstly, that China could never be an economic, serious economic challenger to the United States. And secondly, China's rise was unsustainable because it didn't have a Western-style political system. Well, in 2008, 2009, that period, these positions were undermined. And I think, basically, the American governing elite began to shift its position from something different. It now came to regard China not in that kind of potentially benign relationship, but as a threat to American global hegemony. And that process continued and developed and, of course, acquired its present meaning with the election of Trump as the president in 2016. And I would characterize that this period and the present as the West, well, the America in particular, to a lesser extent, other parts of the West, as hegemonic angst. They are now feeling the danger of being displaced. And this is, brings me to my second point. And that is that what this clearly shows is the inability of the United States as the presiding hegemon in the world to come to terms with the fact that it cannot continue in that position, that it's an unsustainable position, but it cannot bring itself to believe in it because, you know, essentially the American DNA is that country has to be the number one country in the world. But that is not possible. And we can see that already very clearly in all sorts of ways. But we're going to be witnesses to a very painful process, not just over the next few years, but I would suggest over quite a long period, of America rising, trying to prevent this trend, this inevitable, it seems to me, trend of its displacement as the most powerful country in the world. And I wonder whether, if I can just have a moment of a more broader historical reflection, I wonder how long it will take the US and other countries like my own UK to come to terms with a world which is no longer Western-dominated and Western-centric. Hegemons find it very difficult to let go. I mean, even China. You know, if you go back to the late 18th and early 19th century when China's China began its decline. It found it, it, it took 150 years, really, for China to come to terms with a different reality. And uh, I think it's going to take the West, and America in particular, a long time 
to come to terms with this new sort of reality. Now, where are we now? Well, I think I would personally, I've come around to the view that we're actually in a, the Cold War has started. It's not something, it's not the coming Cold War, it started. Of course, Cold Wars, the last Cold War, lasted a long time and it goes through many phases. So it's not a static situation. But I think we've now entered the new Cold War and I think we should expect it to last quite a long time in reality because the only thing that will bring it to a, a conclusion is if the essentially is if the United States shift its position. What does that mean? It comes to terms with the reality that it has to share primacy in the world with China. That is really the condition, it seems to me. That's the historical condition that has to change. When the Americans decided to, at 72 hours notice, close the consulate, build a Chinese consulate in Houston, my reaction was rather the same as Wang Wen said earlier on. I would not be surprised if the United States doesn't break off diplomatic relations with China well before the presidential election. Of course, this is all part of the theatre of Trump's re-election. But I think that that is definitely a possibility, taking us back to before 1979 when Carter came to recognize China, diplomatic relations to China. So my final point is this. Obviously, this Cold War will have some of the characteristics of the previous Cold War, and I think that's been illustrated by some of the points that have been made in the discussion. But I don't think it will be a rerun of the last Cold War. And I would say that was various reasons, but I would just like to highlight two reasons why I feel that to be the case. Firstly, China is far stronger than the Soviet Union ever was. The Soviet Union was never a serious economic challenger to the United States. And China is in a totally different position. China is already in some areas already ahead of the United States. And its potential and capacity is much greater than that of the United States. So the United States is faced with a completely different kind of problem in China as compared with the Soviet Union. And the second thing I would like to emphasize is that I don't think that China's response is going to be same, the same as the Soviet Union's. I mean, I think one of the things I would criticize the Soviet Union for was you know, to go toe-to-toe on military expenditure in an arms race with the United States, which it could not afford anyway. China is not going to make that mistake, in my view. You can see that already. I mean, although its uh, military expenditure spending has been rising, as other people have already said, China's military expenditure is well below that of the United States. So I think that China will not conduct itself in the same kind of way as the Soviet Union did. And I think this is extremely important, and I think that this will greatly assist those forces around the world who are worried about the Cold War and who, like us now, are seeking to campaign against it. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to Essential Dissent. This is the second of two episodes consisting of audio from a webinar entitled No to the New Cold War. We just heard from Shan Chin Kang of the Chow Collective, followed by Martin Jacques, author of When China Rules the World. Now back to moderator Jenny Clegg, who will introduce the next speaker. Our second speaker now from China is Yang Hanyi, 
who is the senior editor of the influential Chinese news website Guancha. Guancha literally means to observe in Chinese. I think their intention is to post some videos uh, from this event on their website, and I know it will really mean a great deal to people in China to see people around the world prepared to stand up against U.S. bullying. Okay, over to you. Well, thank you, Jenny, for a very kind introduction. Yes, Guantajo literally means observer. So, I just want to share with you what I have observed. There's a famous line from a Chinese poem saying that ducks are harbingers of spring because they are the first ones to know when rivers warm up. I think likewise, we're the first ones to get chills when relations freeze. Whereas in China, people tend to see it as the result of America's disillusionment with failure of converting China into a liberal democracy through economic engagement. But no matter how people look at it, no matter how much the voices of reason in both countries want to salvage the situation, I think we ought to frankly acknowledge the fact that the two major countries in the world are going to have an uneasy relationship, featuring heavy competition, deep mistrust, and uh, strong antagonism and limited cooperation, and we are in it for the long haul. Two months ago, I interviewed Professor John Mearsheimer, a renowned IR theorist from the United States. We examined similarities and differences between the current situation and the Cold War in history. Now, given his theoretical framework, it was hardly surprising that the Blunts suggested that we are already in the Cold War. Indeed, his assessment is echoed by many realists in China who also view the international system as an iron cage. What really struck me was a stinging remark on how the pandemic has aggravated, not ameliorated the situation, as optimists would have assumed. They used to say that China and the United States could put away the differences if there's to be an alien invasion. In a way, the coronavirus is the alien, but it hasn't stopped the bat from getting worse. And people used to argue against the prospect of the Cold War by pointing to greater economic interdependence, lower likelihood of proxy conflict, absence of diametrically opposed ideologies. While many conditions still hold true, it is alarming to see new realities being actively shaped up by Cold War warriors in the Trump administration. For example, the nature of the rivalry between China and the United States has nothing to do with ideologies. Anyone visiting China is able to spot the endless differences between this country and those that belong to the former Soviet bloc. But this hasn't stopped the likes of Pompeo from singling out and demonizing the CPC. I think this is a highly calculating, well-engineered move aimed at portraying the rivalry as an ideological showdown, thereby reviving the West's fear of Soviet communism, which they hope will work as a call to arms against China. And this is highly dangerous as it could become a self-fulfilling prophecy, making your already thorny relationship much harder to manage. Groups and figures that were previously considered unorthodox, eccentric and edgy, even by the American standard, I think that's the nicest way of putting it, by Chinese standard, the clowns, traitors and cultists. But they are now openly invited into policy consultation and decision-making processes and crowding out seasoned veterans and advocates for engagement. So much that that to the extent that there's no bona fide China expert on the team. And the establishment elite knows very well that deep-seated bias and twisted views are hardwired into the minds of those people, but somehow they believe what they can get from the marriage of convenience outweighs the cost of making unsound judgment. And that is insanity. Because though fraught with difficulties, China-US relationship is the single most consequential bilateral relationship in the world. 
And China understands the future will not be smooth sailing. It anticipates more easily agitated United States, and we are ready to open up even more to create a level playing field to compete and cooperate with the United States in providing domestic prosperity and global public goods. But this should be a fair game between us and the bald eagle. It's not a dirty fight with snakes and rats. And by and large, I think China has moved in the right direction, particularly in its engagement with the vast developing world to facilitate the making of a community of shared future, which is woven together not by abstract ideologies, but through bonds of partnership on socioeconomic matters. And we must admit that we will encounter profound challenges going forward, not least because the U.S. tries to sell a horror story of China to the world. And in, in this regard, China suffers great setbacks because it doesn't command the same level of soft power the United States enjoys. Therefore, it's hard to get its point across cultural boundaries. But in the end, I believe actions speak louder than words. And looking ahead, I think China should keep its head cool not be discouraged by a spiking curve of hostility in some parts of the world, most notably the Five Eyes countries, where the top diplomats in the U.S. seem to favor confrontation over diplomacy. But the heart that they try to drive a wedge between the Chinese people, the state, and the party, they're firm we should stand together, not only within China, but also to reach out to the people of the global south, to those in the West, and particularly to those in the United States, because they are the ones who have most to lose in the new Cold War. And America is struggling with its response to its own decline. There are voices arguing for managed decline, let go of the hegemonic empire, return to, to a normal nation state, accept a more democratic, more pluralist, more multilateral world order. But there are also voices of reactionary rage, just refusing to go gentle into the good night. The conversation I had with Professor Mearsheimer left me with an impression that even people with immense intellect to lack the faculty to reimagine the world not along lines of domination and hierarchy, but of nexus and centrality. And China has no intention to replace or succeed American hegemony, doesn't want to sit on top of others and push its way around. It's a pity that the United States, and by extension the West, are too absorbed in their own historical experience to understand the different sets of norms that have shaped China's behavior for millennia. And today we're gathered here to condemn those who have no scruples about dragging entire humanity into division and conflict. They may hold sway today inside the beltway, but remember, we are many and they are few. Let's harden our hearts and renew our faith, not in miracles or supernatural beings, but in people. Unite together, we can move the world. Thank you. Thanks so much, Hanyi, for those inspiring words and how important it is for people like yourself, yourself, to uh, continue to develop China's communications and soft power. Thank you. Now, we have two speakers on the panel from Latin America, another important poll in the multipolar world. The first is from Venezuela, which, of course, has bravely sustained its stand against the U.S. hybrid war as the latter has perfected its techniques, which are now, now endeavouring to use also against China. So we have very... Delighted to have Carlos Ron, Vice Minister for North America, Venezuela's Ministry of Foreign Relations. Well, thank you very much uh, for this opportunity, and it's great to be with such a great panel and see so, uh, so many uh, familiar faces. Like you said, on behalf of the people of Venezuela, of the Bolivarian Revolution, of, uh, on behalf of President Nicolás Maduro as well, we salute this conference. We wanted to participate because we feel it is very important that we stand up against this pretext of a new Cold War 
If there's one region around the world that knows very well the catastrophic effects of a Cold War, it certainly is Latin American and the Caribbean. For a large part of the 20th century, we were one of the main battlefields in that war. Thousands of people died, were tortured, imprisoned, disappeared as a result of Washington's Cold War uh, tactics. Meanwhile, democracy, uh, land reform, human rights, environmental rights, you name it, they were all sacrificed in the name of the Cold War. And international law was, co was constantly trampled upon. We had coups in Guatemala, Grenada, Chile, Brazil, Argentina, Dominican Republic, the bloody civil wars in Colombia, in Central America, El Salvador, Nicaragua. And, and the criminal blockade against Cuba, that it, that it still exists, this is all stemming from that Cold War. So we have to oppose entering a new environment that resembles that one. You know, after the Cold War was formally over and the Washington consensus to, took over with devastating economic policies throughout the region, deepening the divide between those few that, that uh, had everything and the many that had nothing until the people started reacting to this and turning it a bit around. And during the last 20 years, what we've had in Latin America has been, you know, a struggle where new governments came in, new popular democracies came in with leaders that resembled their people and that countered this U.S. corporate dominance, trying to find an independent way, one that opened the door for regional integration, but also, very importantly, for integration with other parts of the world that we weren't accustomed to. China became then a strategic partner for Latin America because it didn't come with that Cold War mentality. It didn't approach the region, Venezuela in particular, I could, I could speak for, as property or as possible colonies. It sought partners for shared development and shared growth. And, and Washington resents this because, you know, honestly, I think it, it can understand that there can be other sets of values around the world that don't mimic their own. The United States has never looked at Latin America as a strategic partner, but rather always from an imperialist and from a supremacist per perspective. In the 1800s, when the struggle for independence of, of the South American nations, Thomas Jefferson wrote about our countries saying, those countries cannot be in the better hands, meaning the hands of colonialist Spain. My fear is that they're too feeble to hold them till our population can be sufficiently advanced to gain it from them piece by piece. So this, this idea that we are the property of the United States is it, it, entrenched into their history. And it became doctrine. It became the Monroe Doctrine. And it didn't stay back in, uh, in the, eight, in the uh, 1800s. You know, it's still here today. And both of Trump's Secretary of State, Tillerson and Pompeo, have invoked the Monroe Doctrine. So has uh, you know, Bolton uh, when he was in, in, in place. It's particular to say that, that they wanted to invoke this principle to counter Chinese presence in the region. The thing is, for us, this is really about what you know, the U.S.'s geopolitical competition. This is an issue of self-determination. We in Venezuela, as well as any other Latin American nation, we have the sovereign right to have the relations we consider are beneficial to our people. And no Cold War logic should have a different say. And this is a matter of principle for us. What makes us worse is that we see this new uh, Cold War building up in, in the middle of the huge crisis that the United States is having. And a lot of our friends have spoken about this, but you know, we're facing this pandemic. Over 145,000 lives have been lost. More than 40 million people have lost their jobs. And it's disproportionately affecting the poor, the racially discriminated, the homeless, the undocumented workers. And so, it's, so the United States seeks, again, to turn this into an issue with a foreign, of a foreign threat and, and looks for China. And by the way, you know, it's not only this administration, but you see the discourse of the possible alternative. And they're all trying to exacerbate this shady uh, threat.
we have stood up against this vision. We have stood up against the, this vision of, of Latin America as a property of the United States, and we're paying the price. There's a hybrid war against Venezuela with, with illegal economic sanctions, with the threat of military intervention, with you know, the, the attempts at diplomatic isolation, the fierce propaganda that talks about the Venezuelan democratic process. And there's no real interest in Venezuela's well-being or the people of Venezuela. If there was, there wouldn't be blocking of food, medicine from coming in, gasoline down to, to this point, you know, as, as opposed to what we have with China, where with China we have a relationship of, co- of co- cooperation, primarily a relationship of respect. China has been a key ally for us in, in this COVID-19 crisis. In the middle of you know, this blockade, we've received you know, help from the technical help. We have the teams working here in Venezuela to, to craft up our policies to, to deal with this. They've offered aid just this week with the vaccines to all of Latin America. So this is a very different concept from the Monroe Doctrine. We wish we could have a working relationship with the United States, one based on respect. But if we're going to start from the Monroe Doctrine, we're going to part from the arrogance and the aggression to think that we are their property, their, their backyard, is just impossible. So this is our context from Venezuela. This is where we live. We have to fight this new Cold War. We call all nations, we call people, all movements to stand for peace, to stand for stability, to stand for international law. We have real challenges that we must face together. You know, we have planets running out of resources. The, the poverty that's, that could still be turned around if we were somehow in focus on that and not on starting a new Cold War. So from Venezuela, we are in solidarity. This is our perspective, and we are in solidarity with all people fighting against this new Cold War, and we say no to new Cold War against China or against any other people. We are here for peace and for brotherly relationships. Thank you very much. You're listening to Essential Dissent. This is the second of two episodes consisting of audio from a webinar entitled No to the New Cold War. We just heard from Yang Hanyi, senior editor of the influential Chinese news website Wan Chao, followed by Carlos Ron, Vice Minister for North America, Venezuelan Ministry of Foreign Relations. Now back to moderator Jenny Clegg, who will introduce the next speaker. Now I'm pleased to introduce our next speaker, who is from Russia. Russia and China have a well-established partnership for peace through a multipolar balance, challenging U.S. dominance with their call for the equality of states. Yuri Tavrovsky is a professor at the Russian People's Relationship University. He's a China expert who has been studying China's history for more than four decades, and he has been very quick off the mark, I must say, in authoring a new book, America Against China, Cold War in Times of Coronavirus. Over to you, Yuri. Hello, everyone. I used to be a Cold War warrior myself. Not a wolf warrior but rather a bear warrior. In the 70s, I was writing commentaries, news, for Radio Moscow Chinese service. And in the late 80s, I was coordinating Soviet propaganda on China and to China in the ideology department of the Communist Party Central Committee. In 1989, it was a great pleasure to take part in ending the Soviet-Chinese Cold War, when I accompanied Michael Gorbachev, Mikhail Gorbachev, Secretary General of the Communist Party, on his historic visit to Beijing. The propaganda war was generously funded 
but much more resources were spent on the military buildup along the border with China. My country had to prepare at that time for hot wars on both Eastern and Western France. And all this contributed in the collapse of the Soviet Union, even without a real war. That initial first Cold War was on the brink of nuclear confrontation several times. Not only during the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, but also in 1963, uh, when uh, President John Kennedy uh, planned a preemptive strike against China to stop its nuclear program from fruition. Kennedy even offered Moscow to bomb the Lopnor test site together. In 1969, Moscow was going to punish Chinese adventurers with a nuclear strike after clashes on the border between the two countries. The new Cold War was started by the United States against China only a couple of years ago, but develops with a threatening, unprecedented speed. It is further destabilizing the global security, already suffering from Russo-American confrontation, Russo-American Cold War, which is going on. America apparently wants to have two Cold Wars at the same time. It is harmful to the world's stability, but also contrary to their own strategic interests. Confrontation on two fronts has ended badly for Germany and Japan in the 40s and for the Soviet Union in the 90s. We in Russia have learned the lesson and do not want to join one more Cold War. What we want is to see a multipolar and stable world successfully dealing with extremely serious common issues which confront it, such as arms control, climate change, control of pandemics, and economic development. Therefore, I strongly support the main idea of this meeting, of this webinar. A new Cold War against China is against the interests of humanity. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Yuri. How important it is that Russia and China work together in tackling this new Cold War and how far the relationship between Russia and China has come. I'm now delighted to introduce to you Dr. Radhika Desai, who is a professor at the Department of Political Studies at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg, Canada, where she set up a geopolitical economy research group. She's the author of Geopolitical Economy After U.S. Hegemony, Globalization and Empire. She's been associated for over 10 years with the World Association for Political Economy, working with Chinese Marxist scholars. That association was set up by the well-known Marxist scholar, Professor Cheng Fu. Over to you then, Radhika. 
Thanks very much, Jenny. And hello, everyone. Thanks for attending this. And many, many thanks to the organizers for organizing this extremely well-designed event. I'm delighted to hear this diversity of voices, particularly from China. And I've just put in the chat box um, the uh, title of the Chinese translation to geopolitical economy for the critically important audience from China. I'd like to add that I'm also co-editor of the New Cold War website, www newcoldwar.org, and we have been tracking developments along these lines since 2014, and uh, we'd love to see further material on it. What I want to address is the sort of broader issue. I think a lot of panelists have given us a rich panoply of the details of the situation. I want to now step back and say, you know, if we want to protest and plead the case of new Cold War, how do we ensure that the new Cold War against China does not come to pass or is stopped if we believe it's already underway, which is kind of true. The key lies, I think, in the evolution of what I call the geopolitical economy of capitalism up to its present moment. This geopolitical economy promises, the present moment promises to be a further reversal of fortunes for imperialism, a reversal that can be traced back to the late 19th century in the competition of imperial powers, which culminated in the First World War, the weakening of imperialism and decolonization after the Second World War, and it continues to this day the rise of multipolarity. Cold Wars, previous and present, have been ways in which the West has tried to stem this reversal of imperialism. And the present one is significant because it takes place at a time when capitalism is at a lower ebb than ever before. I think this gives it the distinctive character. In this regard, I want to make three points. The first one is that the relations between countries do not flow ethereally above societies. They are built on the dynamics of societies, particularly on the unstable dynamics arising from the contradictions of capitalism. They have driven the international relations of capitalism from its birth until today. So today we see the drive towards the new Cold War which is also resulting in opposed alliances on the one hand between the capitalist powers led by their most neoliberal powers, such as the United States, the United Kingdom, the various Anglo countries in particular. And they're trying to create an alignment between these powers on the one hand and the rivals and defiant victims of these powers. So China, Venezuela, Iran, Russia, etc. All of these are a combination of rivals and defiant victims of these powers. The essence of the dynamics of neoliberal capitalism today lies in the crumbling of neoliberal orders that the pandemic has accelerated but not caused. It has led to a disarray of capitalist forces. It has endangered their hold on developments, both domestic and international. The new aggression against China stems directly from this. It constitutes a SOP or a substitute for addressing the real problems of the economy, which popular forces are demanding. They cannot really address the econ uh, real problems of the economy because that would definitely involve advancing away from capitalism towards some sort of socialism, which these capitalist classes do not want to do. That is what makes this moment very dangerous. They are they will do everything in their power to hang on to this situation. Only two things can stop this, and they probably have to work in combination. One is the deft management of this danger by China, and I'll tell you why I think it can do that, and by China's allies, and by progressive politics in the U.S. and other imperialist countries. So popular forces in neo, uh, neoliberal countries can play a critical role. In order to understand why and how their role can be played, I come to my second point. 
imperialism has historically benefited the working classes of the imperial core, but its reversal has the promise of benefiting them even more. So Lenin was not wrong to when he talked about the labor aristocracy in imperialist countries. However, the benefits they derive from being a labor aristocrat in imperialist societies are nothing compared to what they stand to gain from the reversal of imperialism. Let me just give you two examples. Take Roosevelt. He is known for the New Deal as a sort of period of alleviation of the condition of working classes, but he also launched the good neighbor policy. It involved a softening of the U.S. stance towards Latin America, and it was part of a larger reorientation of American foreign policy, which included the establishment of relations with the Soviet Union against which up to that point, the U.S. had been co uh, conducting an unremitting war to try to overturn the fledgling revolution. So these were the international equivalents of the Green New Deal. They went together and became policy only when the Great Depression brought U.S. capitalism to its knees. The U.S. was the worst sufferer of the Great Depression. And even then, it only happened after an administration able to acknowledge this reality and the need to address it was elected. That's an important point to remember. That's why politics makes a difference. So, and the second example is simply the golden age of welfareist Keynesian welfare states. They went hand in hand with decolonization for a reason. It is because of the reversal of imperialism, which narrowed the options of ruling classes at home, that domestic investment and domestic consumption became more important than it could be for countries with ample colonies. So I think that in this way, the anti-imperialism and working class movements have a stronger bond than the labor aristocracy thesis, which is not untrue, underlines, and that's, that involves a whole bunch of things there. My final point is that two developments are coming together to make an international order which has no prospect any longer of being driven by the unstable dynamics of world capitalism. And therefore, it is possible to transit to a new international order which can be under the control of saner powers which are committed to consciously organizing their societies in popular interest. But to get there, we have to stop the new Cold War being sponsored by the neoliberal capitalist interest and in the core neoliberal countries. And we must undermine their power. So I think going into the future, I think we may also see, as we are already beginning to see, a division between the very strictly neoliberal, largely Anglo-American countries and on the other hand, say, continental Europe, which may well choose to go another way. Okay, so a couple of sub-points here. The disarray of neoliberalism means that more and more capitalism is not going to be able to deliver. It's going to be a no-show at major problems. So more and more societies will have to think about organizing their productive activities consciously. And by this, I mean, including the neoliberal societies, particularly the neoliberal societies. The more democratically they do it, the more they will lay claim to be socialist or to be on a socialist path. However, this cannot happen unless the left in these countries once again begins to think about planning and organizing economies, something they have neglected to do for decades. Uh, this neglect, which includes fantasizing about decentralized, small unit capitalism without planning or whatever, this neglect has permitted them to be uncritically critical of actual attempts to build socialism, whether in the USSR in the Eastern Bloc or today in China, Cuba or Vietnam, etc. Actual responsibility for building an alternative to capitalism will compel them to learn from these attempts. They are not perfect, 
but responsible critique of their limitations will be necessary and can only help the people of those countries as well. That is to say the countries already on a socialist path. But engagement must replace the dismissal that has reigned so far. So finally, the rise of this society, the Communist Party state that is poised to be the leading power, although I agree with the point that is made that it does not seek to replace the, the alleged hegemony of the United States. This opens the door to saner international relations of mutual benefit between sovereign countries, a sort of pluripolar world, as Hugo Chavez would have said, sovereign countries who will promote the popular interests each in their own way. And China's ability to lead rests on the beneficial economic pull it exerts on its neighbors. As the late and, and, and much missed Jude Woodward pointed out in her book, The US versus China, Asia's New Cold War, China can counteract the largely symbolic reward the U.S. and the West can offer because it has something much more substantial to offer. Its economic magnetism is going to play an important role and is already permitting China to respond in a saner way because it is less threatened. It is more confident. Capitalism is much weaker today than before. And China has built a house of bricks, not a house of straw or, or, or whatever that can easily be blown down. Thank you very much. You're listening to Essential Dissent. This is the second of two episodes consisting of audio from a webinar entitled No to the New Cold War. We just heard from Yuri Tavrovsky, professor at the Russian People's Relationship University, followed by Dr. Radika Desai, who is a professor at the Department of Political Studies, University of Manitoba. Now back to moderator Jenny Clegg, who will introduce the next speaker. Now our penultimate speaker is from Brazil. Elias Jabor is an associate professor at Rio de Janeiro State University's Economic Science College. He's written about China's economic reforms and relations with Latin America. So, Elias, we're very keen to hear your views on current events. So please go ahead. Thank you too much. Uh, first of all, I would like to thank the organizers of this important event for the invitation. I'm uh, honored to be beside the great scholars and activists from different countries. I send a brotherly hug to my friends Fiona Edwards and John Ross and the Chiao Collective and the great Indian Marxist scholar Vijay Prashad. Directly from Brazil, I send my greetings to the Chinese people, the Communist Party of China and the lovers of the peace and progress of all countries. My speech may be directly from the probably the worst place to live in the world. I speak from Brazil a place governed by an uh, intimate ally of Donald Trump, and which is already is the second most affected country in the world by the coronavirus. The liberated uh, policy of uh, genocide against the poor people is being consciously carried out by Brazilian government. I repeat, Brazil is probably the worst place to live in the world today. And Brazil, I repeat again, is the unconditional ally of imperialism in the world. Brazil now is like Israel of Latin America. In a several events and debates, I have been asked about the post-pandemic world. Of course, I, uh, I avoid uh, answering questions about economics. For example, the people want to know if the, peop- if the industrial policies uh, will be returned to the world. But I don't believe that. I have responded in another field. I have responded very directly that the world is, is and will continue to be an increasingly dangerous place to live. 
And the reason is very simple. The United States needs once again another war. The United States needs to produce every day more reasons to keep your policy of permanent uh, intervention over the world. They need to do the reasons for their failure as a counter to save lives, uh, lives against the coronavirus from around the world. And the United States must, must keep and promote chaos in the world as a means of maintaining uh, its power. China made a major uh, and biggest social revolution of all times 71 years ago. And since then, uh, then have been gaining more and more respect and admiration around the world. In the past four years, its correct development policy has led uh, to removal more or less 850 million people from the poverty line. And will be the first big country in the world to declare victory against poverty in the next year. Brazil, for example, uh, after the coup, more or less 20 million people entered or come back to poverty line. Its size, gigantism, and history qualified China to take a special place in history, the same place that socialism should occupy in the face of an immoral and decadent capitalism. The possible new Cold War against China will not be uh, just a war against China and socialism. It will be a permanent war against all peoples. The world will live moments of extreme tension. For example, in the past five years, just about every country that has received Chinese investment has experienced some kind of political destabilization. Brazil has been shaken by a large protest allegedly against corruption since 2013. But at the bottom, it was a kind of hybrid war against popular governments that approached China and created BRICS, Lula da Silva and Dilma Rousseff. The 2016 coup and the election of Jair Bolsonaro were the result of an intense hybrid war waged by imperialism against the Brazilian people. It's evidently against the growing Chinese influence in Latin America. The moment is very serious. Imperialism has promoted on my continent a series of events that must be seen as part of this new Cold War. In addition to the 2060 Cup of State Brazil, 2018 elections, all progressive governments in our region, South America, have been attacked, overthrown, or militarily, militarily surrounded. The Cup in Bolivia was another tragic event in Latin America. Ecuador was sold to the International Monetary Fund, and Venezuela is experiencing now an intense process and seed of seed and annihilation. China has shown itself to be a great hope to the world. Its large investment in infrastructure around the world has been an element capable of bringing development and new possibilities to the world, especially to the countries of Africa and Latin America. Its state-owned companies are the great spearhead that has peacefully demonstrated to the world that there were alternatives to financial dictatorships exercised by imperialism and its agencies such as the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. A great event occurred in the last days was significant in a point of view. The recent trade and financial agreement signed with the, between China and the Islamic Republic of Iran 
is a milestone in the recent history of international relations. China has intervened very positively in the world and inaugurated new forms of relation between peoples and countries. But although imperialism is decadent, it still has an immense capacity to influence and destabilize any and no culture which has countered the imperialist interests. It is the largest, largest and uh, military and financial power in the world, and it, is, it, it uses the great advantage of being a country that issues the currency, uh, uh, the service uh, as a reference for financial transactions, transactions and turns that currency into a weapon of mass destruction. The new forms of hybrid uh, warfare in uh, war inaugurated during the Obama administration have been used to, to promote instability and the removal of progressive governments around, and the, uh, around the world. And it has been widely used to attack China and, and its national sovereignties. Let us make from this great meeting a great call to progressives from the, over the world in the, in the order to join forces against a new era of aggressions promoted by imperialism around the world. When the new Cold War is not a great need for the present time. Thank you too much. Thank you very much, Elias. Again, really important to uh, hear, to have an input from uh, Brazil to get a multipolar picture. Now, we've reached our last panellist uh, to round off this excellent panel. And to help us look ahead, uh, we have another speaker from the all-important peace movement, that other world superpower. Kate Hudson is a world-renowned uh, is from the world-renowned British Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament. She's an activist as well as sorry, she's an academic as well as an activist, and as chair and then general secretary of the CND for many years, she's seen the organisation through the period of wars in the Middle East, the Ukraine crisis, the North Korean nuclear crisis. So she has a wealth of experience, and she's helped to keep the anti-nuclear movement in Britain in close step with the anti-war movement, with CND's commitment to opposing wars in which nuclear weapons might be used. Over to you, Kate. Thanks very much indeed, Jenny, and greetings to this conference from CND. And I want to give a really big thank you to the organisers for bringing this meeting together, particularly with such an important global reach and such a depth of analysis from the speakers. It's incredible what I've been hearing. As Jenny said, CND is active in the anti-war movement nationally and internationally. We played a central role in the campaign against the war in Iraq in 2003, then against the threat of war in Iran and all other US targets in the so-called war on terror. Now we've seen President Trump step up his dangerous policies. Over the past years and months, he's pulled out of key treaties which for years have controlled and reduced the threat from nuclear weapons and nuclear war. And this is already leading to a new nuclear arms race. We've also seen Trump's national security strategy orientate towards confrontation and conflict with Russia and China. And at the same time as he produced that strategy, he also published his new nuclear posture review, where he talked about a new generation of usable nuclear weapons. And these nuclear weapons, these new nuclear weapons have now been produced and deployed. So if you take these policies together of conflict with Russia and China and usable nuclear weapons, then you're looking at really a very dangerous situation. 
And you may remember that when Trump was campaigning to get into the White House, he asked, well, why can't we use nuclear weapons? We've got them. And of course, we know it's because nuclear war will kill us all and threaten the very future, future of humanity. But I don't trust Trump to have understood that lesson. And I don't trust his finger on the nuclear button. CND opposes the Cold War on China. And we strongly believe that we must work now to prevent a hot war, a fighting war on China. This is the greatest threat to peace and justice in the world today. And I'm proud to say that we work alongside peace campaigns in the United States. It's really good to see our great friend Medea Benjamin here today and alongside all those across the world fighting against war. Together with our partners in Britain, the Stop the War Coalition in particular, we will be putting pressure on our government to change their policy, away from their craven support for Trump's war policies. And stopping the UK aircraft carrier going to the South China Sea will be a start. I'm very pleased to report that this morning at its meeting, CND National Council voted an emergency motion to work in the international peace movement to build worldwide opposition to war on China. That is our pledge. We are all united here to stop war on China, and we will all work together to that goal. So thank you to everyone involved today. Let's do everything we can to build this movement, to build it internationally through all forms of organization. And I look forward to the next steps in this initiative together. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Essential Dissent. I'm Wilton Vaught, producer and host of the series. This was the second of two episodes consisting of audio from a webinar entitled No to the New Cold War. The organizers described the webinar as an international meeting in opposition to the U.S.-led New Cold War on China. We just heard from Elias Jabour, Associate Professor at Rio de Janeiro State University's Economic Science College, followed by Kate Hudson, General Secretary of the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament. You can find Essential Dissent on YouTube, Facebook, and iTunes, and you can download the audio for free via radioforall.net. That's radio, the number four, all.net. Thanks for listening.